If you've been with us in this series, you know we've been doing a series in 1 Samuel. Oh, now it's time, my wife is telling me, for the children to go out at this time. So any of the younger children need to go? I think you're going to be going outside. I think they're going to have a fun time out there. So you're welcome to go right around through here. And you can see, oh, no, it's for you, Dick. This is for the younger ones. He thinks of any way he can to get out from here, but that's so. <laughs> so anyways, we're going to be working. Just a little bit of review that's going on. You know, we've been working in 1 Samuel. And what we've been saying, if you remember, is that God has rejected Saul. Saul has been a person who's been unwilling to follow him fully. God gave him opportunity after opportunity, and yet he continued to turn away from the Lord. And, of course, what happens is finally, remember that whole passage where it said, listen, God said, I'm going to send you to Bethlehem. And there at Bethlehem, you're going to meet somebody that you're going to anoint who's going to be the new king. And they go through all the sons, and they say, don't you have any more sons? Say, well, you know, there's one more. There's a kid out there in the, out in the fields. And say, yeah, we'll meet him, and he's the one who's anointed. Then, of course, we had the story about Goliath and all that went on there. And so we're picking up the story now where this is happening. Saul, Saul is continuing to get a little bit stranger and weirder as he goes. And what's also been happening, as you remember from the passage, is it talked about the fact of becoming increasingly more jealous of the fact that David is doing so well, in fact, in many ways, better than he is. And so when we look in this passage, if you look at it together, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, it says, when the Israel, we're this is picking up this last section, we're going up to 18, but this is like the entrant, end part of it. When the Israelites returned from their pursuit to the Philistines, they plundered their camps. David took Goliath's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. When Saul had seen David coming out to confront the Philistines, he asked Abner, the commander of the army, whose son is this youth, Abner? Well, my king, as surely as I live, I don't know. Now, there's a strange thing here. How could he not know? I mean, this is the one where David, you know, I mean, cuts his head off, but maybe he didn't make a connection between the little boy with the sling and the guy who's the warrior. Whatever it is, it is odd. But he said, I don't know. But the king said, well, find out whose son this is. When David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine head still in his hand. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Saul said to him, whose son of you, young men? Well, the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem, David answered. And here's the saying, now we're moving into this next chapter. It's like, here's this confusion that he's not sure. Is this the same guy, the boy that killed the Goliath? And so we pick it up in chapter 18. And here's where our passage is going to be focused on this morning. I want you to be thinking about it. When David had finished speaking to Saul, John, Jonathan committed himself to David and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. This verse has troubled some people, particularly in recent years, as our culture has changed and our understanding of friendship and relationships has been evolving or devolving, depending on your understanding of what's happening in our culture. But you can understand why there are some people who have focused upon that phrase and said, Jonathan committed himself to David, and he loved him as much as he loved himself. And some people want to take this into a kind of a different kind of direction, and the kids are already moved out. But in other words, a sexual relationship between the two of them, which I think is absolutely nuts. Part of it is, is we're taking what we know in our culture and trying to impose what people did over 2,000 years ago. Let me give you an example. Here's the passage. Jonathan made himself a covenant with David 
because he loved him as much as he loved himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing, that'd be a beautiful robe, um, and he gave it to David, along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and the belt. In other words, man, I'm, I want to be your best friend, and I'm so impressed by you, and you have been fighting the Philistines, and I want to give it to you. And what's tragic is people have tried to make more out of this than it is, particularly in the sexual nature. And it is really tragic because we quite keep wanting to say, well, maybe this is what's going on. It's not. For example, a lot of these people who try to say things like this take little bits of scripture totally out of context and then want to say, oh, here's what's going on. But if you notice in the ancient world, friendship between men and friendship between women was very common. You can go in Africa and watch two guys holding hands together, walking down the street, talking about what's going on. That seems weird in Dallas when you do it. Where they're at, no one thinks twice about it. I mean, they're friends. You can be good friends. John, I hate to put you in the spot, but do you see that in, 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 as well in, in India? Uh, Lindsay, you did see that when you were there? For Americans, we go, that's a little weird, doesn't it? It's like, hey, why would that be weird? Why would be, why, you be afraid to hold hands with somebody who you're a friend with? Uh, and what happens, of course, you look back into the ancient world, and they said, there's nothing strange. I mean, that's not strange. Um, when I was in the doctoral program uh, at seminary, and I was, we were working on Babylonian tablets. I know that makes you really interested. But um, there's the famous story about a guy named uh, Gilgamesh. And that famous Gilgamesh epic is an important one. It's written in Akkadian, and we had to translate part of it. And in it was his buddy Enkidu. And Enkidu, and they were like guys on like a car ride, you know, together, going through the place, killing people and destroying cities and things like that. And they were like best buddies. They were like on a road cruise together, and they were just going places. And there was nothing wrong about that. There was nothing sexual about it. They were just terrific friends. Let's go destroy another city. Hey, I'm with you, buddy. Let's go take it on. And so what's happening here, you see, in the ancient world, is very much like that. If you follow um, Homer, the Iliad, and you read that, you often see that two guys that are paired together who are just perfect friends, and they just fight with the groups, and it's very common. So what happens, we try to take something from our culture and impose it from their culture and try to say, oh, there's something weird here. Don't you see that? Not at all. And by the way, most of us have seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof. Remember the song, do you love me? Do you love me? Well, I mean, I take care of your clothes and I take care of the children, but do you love me? But no, that was a strange thought. Love, I mean, marriage is not about love. You marry so you can get a wife and they can have children and you take care of the children. The men do their thing and the women do their thing. Now, that's so different from our culture. But even in that little phrase, you know, the fiddler on the roof, it's like, do I love you? Well, yeah, I guess, but I mean, Romantic love in that age was a very different system than we have now. But we want to take what we have now and put that upon the, what we see in the world in, in that time. But it's not that at all. And so it is a distortion of the scripture. So let's move on. Going to this next passage. David marched out with the army, and he was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Again, the Lord is with him. We're going to see several times this phrase, the Lord was with him. We'll also see where it says, the Lord took, was, took, did not uh, help him, uh, Saul, anymore. Saul put him in command of the soldiers, which pleased the people and Saul's servants as well. As David was returning from killing the Philistine, Goliath, the women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines, with shouts of joy, and with three-stringed instruments. And here's where the problem starts really being a problem. 
It's this next phrase. As they sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And can't you just imagine what Saul is thinking as he hears that? Oh, the little kid that's now a big warrior, and he thinks he's going to take me out, and I need to be really, really careful. Oh, by this point, by the way, I hadn't mentioned when David was there with him, remember Saul was having problems where he couldn't sleep and he was disturbed. And Saul and David would play the harp for him and it would calm him down. But one time he wasn't feeling good. So he threw a spear at David to try to run it through him into the wall. Tell you what, you only have to do that to me once and you'll never see me again. But he stayed with him. David stayed with him. And that's the second time where he did that. But here we see the beginning of where things are really starting to diverge and go bad. Saul realizes that God has anointed David to be the one that's going to lead the people. And yet there's no way that he's going to give that up freely. He's not going to walk up to David and say, David, you know, I understand that, you know, God has anointed you, and so I'm going to abdicate the throne, and um, good luck, and God be with you. It ain't going to happen. He has no intention of leaving that. And so we can see how this tension is going to get bad and it's going to get worse. Look at verse 8. Saul was furious and he resented this song. Well, they credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they credited me with thousands. What more could he have, have done? But, oh, excuse me, what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day on. Now notice this next section. The next day, an evil spirit from God took control of Saul. And what is interesting here, if you remember passages before, three or weeks ago, the spirit of the Lord came on him to enable him for Saul to be able to be able to prophesy with the other prophets. God did have his spirit on him, but his spirit has now been taken away and replaced by an evil spirit, not, a, um, not in a bad way, but a spirit that's, that's against him. And so it said David was playing the harp as usual, but Saul was holding the spirit, and here it is. He threw it, and he said, I'll pin David to the wall. But David got away from him twice. Like I said, it would only take me once. But anyways, Saul was afraid of David. But notice the phrase, because the Lord was with David. Once again, that key phrase. Why is this guy doing so well? For one simple reason. The spirit of the Lord is upon David, and he's not on Saul anymore. And so the idea here, we're seeing pictures, pictures and pictures of what happens when the spirit comes upon a person in a positive sense, the things that they can do. But we also see when God abandons a person like that in the Old Testament era, and that person moves away from God, then what comes in is an evil as opposed to what was good. So notice this. Said so David, excuse me, therefore Saul reassigned David, made him commander of a thousand men. David led the troops. He continued to be successful in all his activities because the Lord was with him. Again, the idea with the Lord, all is possible. Without the Lord, well, it's another story. When Saul observed that David was very successful, he dreaded him. I can imagine why. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was leading their troops. Saul said, David, Here's my oldest daughter, Merab. Remember he had said, what was going to be given to the guy that takes on Goliath? Well, I'm going to give him my daughter, one of my daughters, and I'm going to give him money and I'm going to no taxes for him. And David said, really? Could you give it to me that again? I want to hear that one more time. And he tells him again, a third time. Yeah, that's pretty good. If you will fight this Goliath and kill him, you'll get all these great things. And so here it says, Saul said to David, here's my oldest daughter, Merab. 
I'll give her to you as a wife if you'll be a warrior for me and fight the Lord's battles. Well, it sounds like he's being gracious. The reality is he's trying to set up situation after situation where it looks like very likely that he'll get killed. Nothing would be better for him than to see David be killed in battle. And so he says, yeah, I'll give you my daughter, I promise. You know, I told you, no taxes. You get my wife, you get money, things will be good for you. He says, no, but he says, all right. He says, I'll give you two wives if you'll be a warrior. But notice what happens. But Saul was thinking, my hand doesn't have to be against them. In other words, I don't want to be the one that goes against them. Let the hand of the Philistines be against them. In other words, we'll put him in situations where we'll let the Philistines do the dirty work for me. Again, here's a man who's turned away from God. The spirit is no longer on him in a positive sense. And so now all it is is how can I destroy the one who delivered us from Goliath? So notice what it says. Then David, David gets, you know, I want to be careful. David is not a perfect person, as you certainly know. You go on down the road, the Lord tells David, you're not going to be the one to build the temple. Why? Because your hands are covered in blood. You've been a warrior for years, and you're not going to be the man. And he's not always perfect either. There's things that he does that you go, mm, that wasn't wise. But if you notice what's happening here, when David responded, he's kind of like, oh, I'm just too, I'm not good enough to do this. He said, who am I that I should become the king's son-in-law? Well, like he promised you that. But when it was time to give Saul's daughter Merab to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalothite, however you say that, as a wife. In other words, he said he's going to give the wife. If you beat him, you'll get it. And then he backed off. And the wife he was supposed to have was taken away from him. Now, right about there, I think, once again, I said, okay, I've had enough of this. I'm not going to let this guy continue to do this to me. But he stays. And by the way, that speaks well of him in a sense. We'll talk about that in a moment. But notice this. Now, Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And when it was reported to Saul, it pleased him. Now, notice again. You think, here's a dad that's saying, great. Michael's one of my daughters. I love her. I'm so glad that she's finding a great guy like David. Isn't that wonderful? But once again, all of it goes around him saying, it's all about me. All about securing my staying as king and making sure that David doesn't get my kingship. So notice what it was. Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. One of them reported to Saul had pleased him. I'll give her to him, Saul thought. She'll be a trap for him. Now notice this. Once again, he doesn't care what's best for his daughter. All he wants to know, what can I do to get rid of this young man? And so he says, okay, he'll be there. The hand of the Philistines will be against him. And Saul said to David the second time, well, now you can be my son-in-law. Like, well, yeah, I was supposed to be last time, right? Well, now you can be the guy. You're the one. So Saul ordered his servants, speak to David in private and, and tell him, like, like, puff him up. Tell him, like, look, the king's pleased with you. All his servants love you. Therefore, shouldn't he become the king's son-in-law, getting them all fluffed up in this kind of deal when he's really trying to destroy them? Saul's servant reported these words directly to David, but he replies, oh, no, no, I, I really shouldn't be doing that. Again, I think he's kind of playing to the masses a little bit too. But he said, it, oh, it's trivial, trivial, excuse me, it is trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law. I'm just the poor man who's common. In other words, I'm not worthy of this great, wonderful thing and giving me this girl that you promised me, by the way, now for the second time. But he's, uh, he's kind of playing the game as well. The servants reported back to Saul, well, these are the words that David spoke. Then Saul replied, well, say this to David. 
The king desires no other bride price than 100 Philistine foreskins. I don't know about you, but let's move quickly over that part, okay? Uh, to take re re revenge on his enemies. In other words, I want you to go out and do battle. And um, I think we can safely assume these guys are not giving these to David. In other words, he has to kill somebody to get them. And that because of that, he'll bring them back and show what a warrior he is. So first, the next section says, actually, Saul intended to cause David's death at the hand of the Philistines. Once again, the spirit of the Lord is on David. Once again, the spirit of God has been taken away from Saul. And as Christians, by the way, just as a side, it reminds us again, thank God that we're living in the new covenant. In the new covenant, it says God's spirit is upon us and it will never be taken away. But it is a promise of God that we have the spirit with us from the point we come to faith in Christ to the time he brings us home. Not so in the Old Testament. Saul is now losing it. When the servants reported these terms to David, he was pleased to become the king's son. Before the wedding day arrived, David and his men went out and they killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented them as full payment to the king to become his son-in-law. Then Saul gave his daughter Michael to David as his wife. And so he did get a woman that he really did care for and she cared for him. Here's this phrase, getting almost repetitively but important. Saul realized the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved him and became even more afraid of David. As David is following the Lord with the spirit on him, Saul is becoming increasingly afraid that somehow David is going to get an opportunity to kill him, and he will, which is interesting. David gives no intention, no idea at all that he would ever do that. And yet that's exactly what happens to a person when the spirit's been taken off of them. You live in fear, and that's exactly what's happening here. As a result, Saul was David's enemy from then on. So notice he's working for Saul. He's with Saul. He's married. He's got, it's, Saul isn't his father-in-law. But he realizes, my father-in-law, if he gets an opportunity, he'll kill me or get me killed. And so verse 30, every time the Philistine commanders came out to fight, David was more successful than all of Saul's officers. So his name became very famous. This passage, as we come through the section, we're seeing this great transition going on. It's all been about Saul, Saul, Saul. Now we're hearing about Saul and David, and we're about to start hearing of just David. I mean, we're going to hear his phrase coming up, but the point is God's power wasn't Saul at one point. He refused to be obedient. The power of, power of God was taken away from him, and now a younger one who's smarter and who's sharper is actually doing what God has called him to do because of, God of powers, God's power is upon him. This passage is interesting in two different layers. One, it's interesting to see David's respect of authority. Now think about this. I mean, you know, we, we see this in the mafia. You see it in all kinds of things. People are always looking for an opportunity to take the big guy out and to get their job or to get whatever they want. David is interesting here in the fact that he recognizes that there is authority. Saul is still the king of Israel. He doesn't try to kill him. Now think about this. If David can take on Goliath, and if he can fight 100 guys, and then later 200 guys, I mean, think about it. He has every opportunity and ability to kill Saul. He chooses not to. He is still the Lord, the one that Lord gave him to be their king. 
And so what you see is really a very interesting thing here. You see that David's response to Saul is different regarding Merab. He could have said, wait a minute, you took my wife away. You promised Merab as my wife. He could have made a big stink about it. He doesn't. He's willing to trust God that what God has for him is what he's going to get. And it's interesting, too, now you're seeing the change of the guard, and you see God's sovereignty at hand. Often unseen, only seen often afterwards, God is moving the plates around, if you want to put it that way. He is setting it and making it closer and closer where Saul's day is going to be finally done. And then David's going to be on top, and David's going to be the king who's going to be anointed by the Lord. And out of that king, David, is going to be the one who brings Messiah, who brings salvation to the world. And so it's a very, very important passage right here. There's the changing of the guard going on. And the spirit of the Lord is what it's all about. There's a second thing I want you to think of is this. Is this passage, you get a really interesting look of what does envy and jealousy look like? For Saul, it is so clear. He's so absolutely clear. He, wants, he is jealous of his son-in-law. He's jealous. They only said 10,000 for me and 20,000 for David. And that jealousy can eat away our hearts. And we become the ones who not only hurt others inside, but we hurt ourselves. It's interesting how often that happens. We talk about Sarah and Hagar. Remember Abraham and Sarah, they couldn't have chilled. Let's get Hagar. What happens? Hagar finds out she's pregnant. <laughs> I'm pregnant. You're not. And suddenly, she is very, very jealous to the point of get rid of him, get rid of her, get her out of here. I don't care what happens, get rid of him. And you see what it almost could have caught was the death of her, of course. And so you see how this that happens among us and how easily it is. Of course, the Old Testament talks about should not covet, you know, you want your guy's car or whatever it is. But how common this happens with us and how common this is among us as Christians, which is an amazing thing to think about. Samuel Beckett, many of you, I feel like in literature, has written so many books, American authors, things. What's interesting, I thought it was an interesting thing what had happened. He was getting really well known in circles that moved him there in terms of book things, and he'd written so many books. And the story goes, as what I'm told, is that what was happening was they were at home one time, and uh, they got a telephone call, and his wife picked it up and goes, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, and she hang it up. And she looked over at her husband and said, this is a catastrophe. And he goes, oh, no, like, is, did your mother die or something? And she said, no, well, what? no, it's not important. Well, can, can you tell me? It's not important. What is it? Oh, they just said that you won the Nobel Prize in literature. <laughs> He's like, what? You weren't going to tell me this? But in other words, she was so jealous that he was going to get all this thing. You would think you'd think you'd be happy for your husband or your spouse, but it wasn't. She couldn't handle the fact that her husband was going to become one of the most famous playwrights and writers in our century, in the 20th century. It happens. It's happened so easily. You can see how things happen like that. For example, I like this. Ben Franklin has always had such pithy things. He said this, it is in the eyes of other people that ruins us. If all but myself were blind, I should not want neither a fine house nor fine furniture. If I didn't know that you all had nice houses, I wouldn't know. And one has so much problem with envy. The reality is most of us all struggle with that. It's not just something that happens. It's what often referred to as the green-eyed monster. And sometimes we think of it, oh, it's got to be like, I'm you know, envious about their car, or I'm envious about their house. It can be other things. I'm envious of their marriage, or I'm envious of their children. 
and how easy it is to start making going down that path of the green-eyed monster and stop forgetting the fact, wait a minute, has God been unfair to you? No. Does he owe you anything? No. So why is it that this is so important to you? And why can you not let it go? It's because ultimately we're telling God, you haven't done enough for me. And that's a tragedy when we get to that point. When our envy turns to the point where we start recognizing, really saying, Lord, you haven't been good enough to me. That's when God tells you, you know what? It's time for you to repent. It's time for you to realize that I have given you the greatest gift you could ever have, the life you could have Jesus Christ the Lord who's given his life for you, and you have eternity to be with him, and you have a life worth living now, and yet you cannot get beyond the envy of what you're struggling now? Do you really believe that God is sovereign? That he'll provide what he, what we sang it today, that he will provide you what you need? And he's saying, this is the thing, when you see it coming, you have to very quickly snuff it out and say, Lord, forgive me. I do believe that you are good. I do believe you know what I need, and I'm willing to trust you. Isn't it interesting how often we come back to that one phrase, we come back to trust? Can I trust a God like this when I'm struggling with envy? And for some of us, it may be that you have a specific thing. It may be even right now, God's brought something in your head saying, yeah, that's me. I'm thinking of such and such. Well, here's a thought for you. We're going to come to the table in just a couple of minutes. This would be a great time to tell the Lord, that's me. And I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? I want to come to this table recognizing that I've made a mistake. I've been dealing with this. This green-eyed monster's been eating me up over this issue, and I want to get past it. Forgive me, Lord. I want to come to this table, a table where I know that it speaks so tremendously to what God has done and what he continues to do for us. And it's a passage that reminds us of the fact of how easy it is for us to be able to turn away. I'm reading from this little two ver three verses in Hebrews 1. I know many of you are familiar with it. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom we have made, he made the universe. Now notice this verse. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact expression of his nature, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, notice this phrase, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in high. Jesus did what the Father called him to do. He completed his task. And it's because that he is in the radiance of his glory, the exact expression of his nature, that he does sustain all things by his word, and he has made purification for sin, that we come to this table as redeemed sinners, people who have sinned, will sin, and will continue to sin this side of heaven, this side of heaven. But the point is, we have a great Savior, and we have great forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, we thank you for this passage. Recognize it seems like an odd passage, but we're seeing being played out in the lives of two men and how much their world is going to change because of the interaction between these two guys. But Father, we thank you.
that your son is now seated at your right hand. He has accomplished the per, the, what you have sent him to do. And that, Father, what he has done is willingly taking our sin, our guilt, our shame upon himself, that we might have the freedom of knowing that our sins are forgiven. What a great God you are. Father, we pray that if there's any of us here, as we're even thinking about this message and struggling with envy of someone else or what someone has or what they do or their lifestyle, that, Father, you remind us again that you're the one that told us that you will take care of us and that you're calling us to trust you even when we don't understand quite where you're leading us. So, Father, thank you. Help us as we come to this table now that we will recognize again the great love that we have and the forgiveness that we have because of you, Lord Jesus. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.